0: Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. We are excited to be back after a little bit of a break, after our uh, recap of the elections a couple of weeks ago. Um, And we're excited to be back with uh, Luke Boggs, as always. Luke, uh, welcome back.
1: I've been back a little bit.
0: You You have been back. It hasn't been... We've we haven't done this in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, but then we're we're also excited to have back somebody who hasn't been back in quite a while, and that is Cody Hall. He's the former communications director for the Hunter Hill for Governor campaign. Uh, Cody, thanks for coming back to the show.
2: Yeah, I'm excited to be back. It's been a about a year long hiatus. So, well, thanks for having me back on.
0: Um, So for our first topic this week, we are going to discuss the upcoming runoffs, uh, primarily on the Republican side for governor, lieutenant governor and secretary of state. We're going to dive into those races and take a look at uh, who's got the best shot, who's got the best shot to represent the Republicans in general elections in the fall. For our second topic, we're going to switch over to the Democrats and talk about a couple of. Uh, memos that the Stacey Abrams campaign put out. Stacey Abrams is the Democratic nominee for governor, and she put out some polling showing early leads over either either of her potential Republican opponents, uh, Brian Kemp and Casey Cagle. Um, and she also put out a little bit of information about her strategy in the primary election where she defeated Stacey Evans. Uh, we talked previously about you know, how different that strategy was for Democrats. Um, And so we're going to take a look back at their view of how that primary went and uh, see if it can tell us anything about what elections in the fall are going to look like. Uh, But let's dive in first with uh, the latest news out of the Republican race. So you'd basically have to be living under a rock to have missed the secret tape recording uh, that uh, Clay Tippins recorded of Casey Cagle, a candidate for governor, where uh, Casey Cagle admits to pushing what he called a bad education bill for the purpose of blocking campaign contributions to uh, the campaign of Hunter Hill, one of his opponents in the first round of this contest. Um, and Cody, since you are our resident Hunter Hill, uh, representative, I'll, I'll just toss the first question to you on this. And that was, what did you think when you first saw the release of this recording and saw that, that your candidate Hunter Hill, um, was the target of this underhanded move by Casey Cagle?
2: Right. So I, I would preface my comments on that, um, I'm no longer a paid staffer on the Hill campaign, so these are my opinions, um, not those of Hunter or necessarily the campaign. But my first reaction was surprise, not that something like that had occurred, but that something like that was now going to be public. I think there are two points here. Number one, I believe that um, it, it shows the character not only of Casey Cager, but also of Clay Tippins. Clay showed a a lack of integrity throughout the campaign in terms of how he went about some of his TV advertising Um, and and this kind of painted another picture or a clearer picture um, of that kind of lack of of integrity because he was not a private meeting with Casey had from what I have um, seen in the press and otherwise um, was asking for a private meeting one on one to discuss things Um, so that's certainly one thing to consider but also there's just absolutely no excuse for the abuse of taxpayer dollars or the use of taxpayer dollars to benefit um, a political campaign, especially during legislative session, which um, in my opinion, I'm not a lawyer, but it does ride that legal line of being in a gray area um, and certainly something that I don't think um, can be waved away by the KC Folks, um, it's a serious issue, and I think Brian Kemp is making an issue of it because it deserves to be one. Um, It's not something that should be said, much less done, um, and Casey did both. So I I wasn't surprised that something like that happened, especially because we believed from the beginning, the campaign and other folks outside the campaign um, thought from the very beginning that Hunter was the strongest candidate against Casey in a runoff. Um, and it showed that, that Casey agreed with us um, and was willing to do quite a bit to keep that from being, to keep Hunter out of the
0: runoff. Luke, what did you think of uh, this recording when you saw the news of this come out? And this lands pretty early in the runoff between uh, Brian Kemp and Casey Cagle. Uh, the election is going to be in late July. Um, so this may be an issue that kind of you know sticks with Uh, Kagel throughout this runoff. What do you think of the chances um, that this hurts Kagel once we finally get to the vote?
1: It's really hard for me to tell because this issue, while it is, um, you know, sort of shocking that a recording like this exists of Casey Kagel, it's sort of a known known uh, that this is the type of thing that Casey Kagel does. (laughs) And then, you know, the whole um, Delta Airlines thing that we talked about a couple. You know, months back, I mean, that was just another example of Casey Cagle doing something for very political reasons, and so the fact that he supported the obviously flawed student scholarship organizations, uh, for political reasons is not a surprise to me. Uh, if it sticks or not, I I don't know because the problem is is that Casey Cagle is campaigning on being conservative and having a lot of experience in the legislature. And so in a strange way, this kind of wheeling and dealing doesn't really go against that narrative in a real way. So I don't know how much people will care. It's sort of, you know, the same thing associated with like a lot of people not caring about Donald Trump's affairs or business dealings. Everyone expects Donald Trump to do that sort of thing. And so a lot of people don't care about it. Similarly with Casey Cagle, people might just not care because this is what they expect from politicians.
0: Yeah, I think the one thing, the other thing that's kind of interesting about it is the question of whether or not this story will stick. Um, so the f- the first bill that was in question was this bill related to student scholarship organizations. And this was what Cagle said on the recording was a bill that he thought was bad in a thousand different ways. And that he and Lindsey Tippins, uh, chairman of the Senate Education Committee, that they had uh, defeated this bill multiple times. They had beaten it to a pulp. And you know, now there's a second bill in the mix. Lindsey Tippins did an interview with the AJC where he discussed another charter bill. Um, and basically both of these bills highlight concerns from Lindsay Tippins that there are too much too much um public dollars that are flowing out of the public system and towards private schools, either through these tax credit scholarships that Cagle talked about on the tape, or in a charter school bill uh, that Lindsey Tippins also had concerns on. And so, to me, the the one way in which this story should live on—I don't really have a dog in this fight—but the the thing that I'm interested in is when Cagle was pressed on this, he did a an interview with the AJC with Greg Bluestein to try to you know explain this away, and he tried to say that. His criticisms of the student scholarship organization bill were actually concerns from Lindsey Tippins, um, and not concerns that Kegel had, and that Kegel was all all on board for this bill, even if it was imperfect. Um, but you know, describing a bill as something that you've beaten multiple times, that you've beaten it to a pulp, that is not the same thing as having minor concerns about a bill and saying, Oh, this is imperfect, but this is a good thing, this is good policy moving forward. Um, and so so that is something that uh, you know, I hope that Kegel has to answer for as this moves forward. But the other thing that's interesting, Cody, is the reason this conversation seems to have been happening between Casey Cagle and Clay Tippins is that Cagle must've thought it would be beneficial for him to try to get Clay Tippins endorsement in the runoff. Um, do you think that that's why this conversation was happening? And if this, uh, indicates a clearly lost endorsement by, uh, Tippins, because he's certainly not going to go back a candidate he released, a a secret recording about, um, do you think that this is an early bad sign for Kegel in this runoff against Kemp?
2: I do for a couple of reasons. Not really. The main reason is because the most watched TV station, the most watched radio station, our um, state's flagship newspaper, I think in the last week, because it, it came out a week ago today, um, in the last week have ran at least three, maybe four, A1 stories in our state's main newspaper um, about this, Um, WSB, both on TV and radio, have repeatedly talked about it, Um, it's approaching the level where any article or anything anyone reads about Casey is going to be prefaced with this recording, or a synopsis of this recording, one of the reasons why it's going to be damning is because of the amount of media coverage that it's going to continue to get. Because as you, as we've seen with the interviews with Lindsey Tippins, there seems to be kind of a drip, drip, drip about this um, that keep or that keeps the story in front of the media. On the second hand, I think it's a significant blow to to Kegel because it plays into the perception that people have about quote unquote career politicians. Um, that they'll say anything to do elect, or they'll say anything to to get elected. Um, They will make backroom deals or or shady backroom deals that benefit their friends or their political futures, not necessarily the taxpayers. So it directly plays into this narrative that Casey is shady, um, that he talks out of both sides of his mouth. Um, And I think that that Secretary Kemp is going to continue to use that um, in the runoff, whether it be in negative advertising in his talking points and stump speeches and his media appearances, that's going to continue to keep that um, in the forefront of the mind. I mean, it's kind of, you know a story is bad when your hometown newspaper, a place that you've lived your entire life, that you've represented in state politics since 1994, wrote an op-ed that just excoriated cable, um, you know saying that if he's willing to essentially engage in a pay-to- play scheme on an issue that he himself calls his most important, which is education, what is he willing to do on all the rest of the issues that he may not care as much about? So I think it, it goes back it reinforces the negative perceptions people might have had about Casey and actually puts a concrete example out there. Um, but it's also catnip for the media. Um, and as this continues to drip, 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 I think we're going to see more of it.
0: Yeah, the, I think the issue of uh, the concrete example here is super important because some of the sort of career politician attacks that were thrown at Cagle in the the primary were criticisms of him using a state airplane. There were criticisms of where did Cagle get his income from, which to me, I, I don't, I'm not as anti-career politician as as this thread among Republicans seems to be, and and so to me those were like, well, you're kind of criticizing him for you know the things that come with doing his job. Um, this is certainly something that does not come with doing his job, um, and so so it does live on. Luke, what are, what's the view uh, from Democrats on this? Is this an issue that if Cagle makes it into the the final round with Abrams that Abrams will continue to make an issue of, or or is she looking to pick different fights with Casey Cagle?
1: I, I pretty much everyone thinks that like, like I was saying in my last answer, that this was just a no known, known that we all know this is how Casey Cagle operates. So for people that are in democratic circles, we appreciate having a very concrete example now to work off of. And it really would be a useful attack for the Abrams campaign as part of their larger narrative of misplaced priorities from their you know Republican administration. Because the Abrams campaign, at least in their uh, messaging so far, has been really dead set on talking about the issues that they care about and the kind of Georgia they want to create. And, uh, having the contrast of Casey Cagle selling out on his most important issue, I think is, uh, part of the narrative, but it can't be the entire narrative. You know, the Abrams campaign would be, uh, missing a really large opportunity if they just spent the whole rest of the race talking about this recording. And they, if, you know, I think they're going to try to tie it to, uh, their message and the policies that they want to advocate and, uh, showing how this recording shows that Cagle can't really advocate for his policies because he's too compromised and, you know, seeking political advancement and um, he's selling out his own his own self-stated most important issue.
2: I think the one thing that's interesting there that I think Luke kind of mentioned that, you know, the Abrams campaign is already using, or at least either the Abrams campaign or or the state party on the Democrat side, it's already. It's
1: basically the same thing.
2: Right they are already using um, this tape to try to lower Casey or attack him on social media and a couple of other outlets. So I say that to say, it, it seems that the the Democrats are employing the same strategy that Casey tried to employ in our primary as to, um, to knock off the perceived more competent opponents or, or more dangerous opponents to get by in camp. And I that that is just not a good strategy for a couple of reasons. You know, if, if people keep underestimating Brian Kemp, um he's I believe he has a very good shot of walking into the governor's mansion. I think the Kagel campaign has underestimated him and then, you know, combined with a couple of errors on their part, I think this runoff is probably a coin flip at this point. And I think that if um the Democrats maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, um Perceive Kemp as a better opponent in the fall for them, I think they have to be careful. I don't think anyone has a larger statewide organization and network than Brian Kemp um, and this constant, okay, I'm going to attack someone else so that I'll get the candidate that I want. I just don't see that as a, um, a real way to do the justice of trying to get Abrams into the governor's mansion. I think they should be spending their time constantly on the positive to try to define abrams before the nominee comes out because once we do have a nominee there will be a enormous amount of money spent negatively trying to paint her as someone who isn't electable at the statewide level
0: trying to pick the absolute worst opponent did not work out for hillary clinton so right so uh, I, I mean, maybe I'd there's a
2: lesson there a idea because At this point, they do have an incredible advantage up until July 25th. I mean, the Democrats can fundraise, they can unify, um, and instead of trying to pick your opponent, um, I think they should be using their money early to um, try to bake in some of the positives that Abrams has to offer um, instead of trying to pick their opponent. Um, I think it's a waste of time.
0: Well, the other way in which this um, is a good moment for Stacey Abrams is that it, it appears, you know, before this tape came out, but probably definitely now that this tape has come out, that Casey Cagle was not going to pivot to sort of a positive message and sort of assume that he kind of had it in the bag for the runoff. He had already put out a couple of ads. Um, hitting Kemp one on an agricultural deal uh, that he was involved with, with a company that he's an investor in um, that had some issues uh, with the uh, Department of Agriculture in Kentucky. And then they hit him on another ad uh, related to the data breaches at the Secretary of State's office. Um, and both of these ads sort of tied into the theme of Kemp's ads during the first round of the of this race. Um, or Kemp's a uh, big truck was in the second ad and uh Kemp sat there or a a Kemp lookalike a Kemp impersonator had to sit there um as a farmer held a shotgun and uh complained to Brian Kemp about this agricultural deal so this race this runoff you know probably was never going to be kind of both of these candidates trying to make a positive argument they're they're going to be hitting each other back and forth all the way to the end of July Um, And that's something that uh, that Abrams has an advantage on, at least in this moment.
1: Well, I think both of you are kind of missing a larger point of the Democratic strategy, because I'm going to expand it beyond just Abrams campaign and to the DPG and other elements in the party. And it's just uh, even even if we think and I do think that Brian Kemp would be a weaker opponent for us, and that's probably who we would want to go against. It's beneficial to hit Casey Cagle on all of this stuff now because if he ends up being the candidate, then we've already done a lot of legwork to define him as a candidate for governor and define him in a way that would be advantageous to the Abrams campaign because, um, you know, Democrats don't typically win in Georgia. And so if a Democrat is going to win Georgia, they're going to have to, you know, make themselves look acceptable and make their opponent look unacceptable. And at the same time, it's, it's the same thing. We've been talking about um, this whole race, really, and the fact that the Democrat is going to have to manage to increase the Democratic turnout and get some of the swing voters. You have to do both. And so in the same way, you have to define your opponents and define yourself. Um, And a lot of campaigns have tried to do that after Labor Day. And in Georgia, that's just, and I think nationwide, that's just not enough time. And so if anything, this reminds me of a lot lot of what... um, Barack Obama's campaign did to Mitt Romney in the summer, which was work very very hard to make him look like a uh, you know just f- businessman who is going to sell everyone out to China and to sell out you know your your jobs and so in the same way they're trying to show Casey Cagle as a sellout.
0: The one other little interesting thing uh, that was a difference between Cagle and Kemp early in this race, separate from the recording, was a trip that Casey Cagle made to Vegas. Uh, to meet with donors. He said that it was related to a technology company that had invested in in Georgia, but there were questions about whether or not he was going to meet with Sheldon Adelson, the GOP mega donor, who also is a casino magnate. Um, and that ties in this issue of casinos and whether or not um, those could make a difference in this Republican primary. Cody, do you think that this issue has any resonance with? Republican voters because at this point both Cagle and Kemp have said that they oppose casino expansion, and abrams supports it if it goes to uh, funding for education um but you know beyond getting past this tape is are Republican runoff voters gonna get to the polls because they feel strongly about casinos
2: um I believe so um because there's a a i don't have the specific numbers in front of me but there are, I would say, upwards of two thirds of the folks. Just you know, off of my gut feeling and the previous polling we've looked at throughout the race, I would say upwards of two thirds of the folks um, that would be going to the runoffs would consider themselves evangelical Christians or, or Christian conservatives. So I think you know, casinos are a, a big issue, um, and I, you know, um, I don't buy Casey's um, rationale for going to Vegas to meet with the technology company or, you know, everyone knows what you go to Vegas for. Um, it's either gamble or in cases, um, case to talk to folks in the casino industry that have money. You know, I, I think the Kemp campaign put out a couple of things saying, you know, um, we're expecting a flip-flop and, you know, based on this recording that we have, we have pretty concrete evidence that um, those kind of things happen. Um, and...
0: Yeah, Casey's price sounds like it's about three million dollars. Right.
2: So, if uh, and, and just
0: cheap for Sheldon
2: Adelson. Right. Which is what I was about to say that Adelson can can either match that or exceed it to a large degree. So, um, it is an issue, but I think again, unless there's another recording to come out or there's some kind of proof that, that Casey was um, was thinking about flip flopping on this issue, I think it's going to be it's going to be kind of a status quo. You know, both are saying they're against it now in the general it probably will be an issue.
0: All right, well, let's shift a little bit to a discussion of the lieutenant governor runoff. Um, so this is going to be between David Schaefer and Jeff Duncan. They are the two that advanced after the first round. Um, so Jeff Duncan got nearly, not Jeff Duncan, David Schaefer got nearly the 40, the 50% of the vote that he would have needed to avoid this runoff. He got about 49%. And he also got the endorsement of the third place finisher, uh, Rick Jafaris, who himself pulled in 24% of the vote. Um, So together they have nearly three quarters of the vote between those two candidates. Um, And Jeff Duncan is, is sitting there uh, without an endorsement heading into this runoff. Um, Cody is, is this even a contest still, or uh, are we just waiting for Schaefer to kind of wrap this thing up?
2: I think it's going to be tough. Um, I think the June 30th filing deadline will tell us a little bit, um, Jeff is going to have to be pretty close to David's or Schaefer's numbers, um, to be able to make this a race. Um, I think if Jeff would have been able to raise a little bit more money, put his face on TV in a couple more places, I think it would have been a lot closer. This has always been a, a question of money, in my opinion, um, Because in lower, you know, in down ballot races, it's who can get on TV and who can who can spend the most money getting in in front of voters. And Schaefer won that by a mile. I think Schaefer still had about two hundred thousand left in the bank, from what I've heard. Um, So if if he's able to raise another big chunk of money, um, you know, I'm not that good at math, but but forty nine is pretty close to fifty. So, (laughs)
0: Um, Luke, is there any opinion on Democrats about? Uh, facing either Jeff Duncan or David Schaefer, um, you know David Schaefer had a, a sexual harassment complaint filed against him, uh, but those uh, those allegations were dismissed by a Senate committee. I don't I don't think we know much about Jeff Duncan aside from the fact that he's sort of positioning himself as the conservative alternative. I think do we do Democrats have an uh, opinion on
1: who they'd rather face? Really, I think on this for uh, on this front for all the GOP runoffs. The Democrats are kind of doing what Kogi uh, was suggesting that Democrats should be doing and trying to define themselves and not worry too much about uh, who they end up facing because in a lot of ways... There's definitely differences, but not any significant ones for a statewide Democrat running uh, between all the other GOP runoffs. So in those races where there's a lot less money and a lot less staff, uh, those candidates are just working really hard to get in front of voters and get their message out, and whoever uh, they end up facing, they'll they'll be prepared for.
0: Is there a better, Cody, is there a better pairing um, for republicans outlook in november between a a gubernatorial candidate and a lieutenant governor candidate um between this you know the four that could possibly be the candidates
2: i think republicans are approaching kind of a a deciding point um maybe not this term but probably next term or the term after in in terms of we're going to need some new blood and statewide elected officials and that kind of thing i mean Cagle has been elected 12 years statewide. He's been in office since 1994. I think Schaefer was first elected in 2002. Kemp was first elected to the state senate in 2002. So that was one of the reasons why, you know, us on the Hill campaign felt so good about um, our candidacy is that kind of a fresh face and you know that's that's new to voters. Um, and I think that, in my personal opinion, I think we need to look at because. There have been things that have happened in the state Senate that I don't agree with that I think should have happened that didn't happen. Um, and it seems that every time one of the candidates that come from the state Senate are asked about this, they kind of point fingers. So, you know, Schaefer's out there trying to sell HB 170 as not a tax increase. Every time is asked about a specific policy issue, um, like education or something like that, he, he kind of has to dance around it. I think folks are tired of that kind of stuff. Um, They want a new face. Um, They want someone who hasn't been in politics for a really long time and has not that much to show for it. I think you know a Jeff Duncan or Brian Kemp ticket would be more attractive to a lot of voters out there than a Casey Cagle and David Schaefer ticket. But that's just my two cents. I think if we do end up with a Casey Cagle and David Schaefer ticket, both will win. I think there would be close margins. But I think it's not just about the top of the ticket. It's about those state House and state Senate races. It's about the Public Service Commission races for Karen Handel and Rob Woodall. It's about our congressional races. Um, so I think um, a, a Kemp and Duncan governor-lieutenant-governor ticket would be a little bit stronger, but I think any of the four will win.
0: Um, Another race where there does seem to be some fresh blood or at least some some people I had not heard of prior to this election is the race for Secretary of State. Uh, The two more well known figures, Buzz Brockaway and Josh McCoon, they did not make it to the final round. The two candidates that did make it are Brad Raffensperger and David Bell Isle. Brad Raffensperger is a member. He's a member of the state house, right? And uh, and David Bell Isle is the mayor of Alpharetta. Um, But they are they are two figures with a lower profile. They're uh, also two politicians that come from the metro Atlanta area. Is there anything about this race that sticks out to either of of you guys? Um, Because two candidates with relatively low profiles are going to go up against a Democrat in John Barrow that has a relatively high profile given his, uh, service in Congress and the fact that his district at one point or another probably covered about half the state of Georgia. Um, so is there anything that, that you guys are looking at in this race?
2: I think off the top of my head, the main thing I'm going to be looking at is I think Raffensperger put in a significant in the six figures of his own money into TV there in the, in the final stretch. Um, if he shows a willingness to go back to his own wallet for the runoff, um, it would almost guarantee that he would be also willing to do it for the general. Um, and I think John Barrow is going to be a, a very challenging or a very good candidate for, for the Democrats. I think he's honestly their best shot at, at winning statewide because if he can run um, alongside or along the same margins as Abrams and Amico in in Metro Atlanta and then his name might be in the 1st, the 12th, and the 10th current congressional districts, I think he could really make a race out of it, Um, especially if he's able to raise the money. So in the runoff, I I think it's probably leaning Raffensperger's way just because he's going to be willing to put more of his own money into it. Um, In the general, it's going to be up to Barrow keep pace with Raffensperger, and how well is the top of the ticket doing? You know, if it's close at the top of the ticket, um, I think Barrow could probably pull out a few more percentage points in places that it matters to uh to pull ahead of
1: of um from what i hear from my democratic friends we also think raffensperger is probably going to be one uh that we're going to go up against and personally i'm a big fan of that idea since uh looking at his issues page right now uh his first issue is the fair tax which uh the secretary of state has jack shit to do with and his second issue is uh track uh, sex trafficking which You could make a very, very stretched argument that you could do something about a Secretary of State, but not really. Uh, So, if Brad Rasmussenberger wants to run on issues that he has no effect on, then I I welcome that argument.
0: Now, Luke, you know another issue that the Secretary of State does not have an impact on is the issue of redistricting, right?
1: Okay, I (laughs) think there There, there is a huge (laughs) difference between that because he deals with elections. like you do not deal with tax at all in any way, shape, or form as the Secretary of State. Like that is not your job. Whereas how elections work is very important to the Secretary of State's position. And also, as uh, Congressman Barrow points, or well, former Congressman Barrow uh, points out, if there was any uh, lawsuit uh, with the state of Georgia involving our election system, he would be a part of it. So. And with with how many uh, lawsuits surrounding gerrymandering there are these days, I don't think that's a, a you know, a, a dangerous bet for him to make that he would be involved in some sort of litigation.
0: That is all true. It, it just bugs me a little bit about Barrow's. But, campaign. but the thing He's is, he doesn't pretend like opinion, he can
1: do anything about it. He he caveats it in the exact same way that I just did, whereas Brad Raffensperger, it's his first issue. It's his first one. And he literally has nothing to do about Anything else on uh, Secretary of State?
2: I think I would just say that it's it's very surprising to me that um, McCoon did not make it in the runoff. Um, I think there were a lot of people that I saw uh, polling pretty close to the election that put Raffensperger in first, and it was pretty close between Belle Isle and McCoon. And to be honest with you, I'm I'm a little surprised that McCoon didn't pull it off just because of his connection to the grassroots um, in the party. But I think it also shows that there is a significant disconnect between the folks who attend your regular GOP meetings and the people who go out and vote on election day. And I think that's something that the state party is going to have to start dealing with. That, you know, there are these third party groups in the GOP apparatus that not only extort their candidates for money, but also put these pledges out there that candidates are then forced to sign, or not not forced, but they're coerced into signing, that then put them at odds maybe with the general election electorate or even the primary electorate. Um, because I can guarantee you not a lot of folks in the state GOP or the county GOP apparatus knew who Brad Raffensperger was, um, but he's going to be our nominee for Secretary of State. So I think there's there's got to be a, a, a thought process in how much we expect out of our candidates from the party side of stuff. Not necessarily the state GOP, but um, some of these other groups, local groups that insist on candidates coming to their every breakfast to their every this and that signing these pledges um, that, you know, we don't need to do this to all of our candidates.
0: Well, with that, let's move on to our second topic for the week. Um, so for our second topic, we're going to take a look at some numbers put out by the Stacey Abrams campaign. Um, the first set of data that she put out that was interesting was a reflection on her victory in the primary against Stacey Evans. Um, as, as we all know, she she won this primary with a really big margin. She took 76% of the vote overall, and she won in 153 of the state's 159 counties, Um, The interesting thing as it relates to looking forward is the increase in turnout over uh, 2014 for Democrats. They saw a 57% increase in turnout over 2014. And that number, interestingly, uh, is an increase of about 200,000 votes, which is close to the average gap between Democrats and Republicans in recent statewide contests. Um, And that is compared to turnout for Republicans that was pretty much flat compared to 2014 um, which in 2014, that was Governor Deal's uh, re-election where he faced kind of a token challenger. Um, and this was a competitive five-way primary for the Republicans that did not boost turnout all that much. Um, Luke, let's start with you. Have, have you um, taken a look at this memo? And and what do you think uh, stands out to you about the way Abrams presents her victory In this primary over Stacey Evans?
1: I think what sticks out to me is that there was a lot of skepticism around the Abrams strategy because the traditional strategy for not just Democrats, but I mean, most candidates uh, in Georgia is that you would raise a ton of money before the primary, spend a little bit of it right before the primary on TV and then hold it until near the end of the campaign and just bombard the state of Georgia with TV ads. And as we thoroughly discussed, the Abrams campaign did not do that. And they spent a ton of money early on field and hiring a bunch of staff and opening offices and getting uh, their, their staffers out there, uh, communicating with the democratic voters very, very early. And I think this is sort of a document whose sole goal is to say, we told you so. This worked. Look at the numbers we racked up. Look at the, you know, increases in turnout that we saw and our margin. So don't be afraid to invest in us because our strategy is working. That is my main takeaway from from this document.
0: You know what's a little bit frustrating though is Stacey Abrams dominated this race so much that it's it's difficult to look, you know, I was interested in looking at, you know, if there were counties where there were lots of African Americans in them, or if there were counties where Abrams put in an investment early to do get out the vote in places like Albany and in other places in South Georgia, where she was putting out there early in the race that you know, she was visiting these places that democratic candidates had not visited before she was reaching out to, to voters that weren't traditionally contacted. Um, she put some numbers in there related to those things, uh, like her, uh, nearly doubling of turnout in, um, the city of Sandersville in Washington County, which is a predominantly African American area. Um, but she also boosted turnout and, uh, just really cleaned Stacey Evans' clock in almost every part of the state. Um, And she even took 75% of the vote in Evans' home of Cobb County. Um, So obviously, I think she's happy about that outcome. And it validates her strategy in that she won with a very big margin. But it's hard to pick out places where if she invested in this county and not that county, was her get-out-the-vote operation really you know, the difference in boosting her margin in that place um, because her margins in every part of the state were just crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think just the fact that her margin is so huge is indication that the turnout operation was working um, because as, as I've maligned the Evans campaign did not really run a campaign in in a real way. Uh, So I think the margin is definitely a symptom of that as well. But I think, you know, without this field operation, Abrams probably would have gotten like 65 instead of 76. So I, uh, and I, I agree with you though. It's, it's definitely difficult to look at this and try to like do some dissecting of, of the campaign, like what worked and what didn't work. Um, but I also think part of this, that's important to to realize too, is that looking at all the messaging coming out of the Abrams campaign it wasn't just the field effort that I think contributed to the the margin that they got and the dramatic increase in African-American participation in the Democratic primary. Everything that the Abrams campaign was doing, to me, seemed geared towards that goal. And so I don't know what benefit we would really get if we could, you know, like, really dive down and figure out like which percentage was the you know PR campaign, which percentage was the field campaign, because to me, it kind of seemed like all those trains were running in the exact same direction.
0: Yeah, it was kind of a tsunami. Um, Cody, the Democrats cast 48 percent of all primary votes in the state, according to these numbers from Stacey Abrams and and they and they had that 57% increase in turnout over 2014 while Republicans were relatively flat. Is that a cause for concern on the Republican side of the aisle? I would say
2: that, that our turnout numbers being the same would be a, a cause for concern. I don't see the the Democratic numbers as being a cause for concern because 2014 was essentially two uncontested primaries, I think. Michelle Nunn had one or two opponents. She won over 75% of the vote. I think, I can't even remember if Jason Carter had an opponent. Right, so I would have thought that if you didn't have a significant increase over two uncontested uh, primaries at the top of the ticket, there would be something really wrong. Um, And I think there's a a couple things that, that Luke also touched on. Evans didn't run a campaign. When the memo came out where it essentially detailed that Abrams was spending over 80% of the money that she took in, I think that was in late January, after the the January 30th disclosing deadline, Um, and the fact that Evans did not immediately go on the offensive and go negative against Abrams, I think was a missed opportunity, because Evans was always the underdog, she was always um, probably gonna be outgunned on TV and on the ground, and I don't think they took this race very seriously. Um, she put in a lot of her own money, but I don't really know where it went. Because I think when it comes out, I know Abrams' campaign itself didn't put the same amount of investment on TV as Evans' campaign, but Abrams had outside help, That it was Black Pack, I think there was another group, I can't remember the name of, um, that essentially matched dollar-for-dollar put on TV in the home homestretch. Um, so you combine that with the fact that Abrams um, went heavy on the ground, um, there's really no surprise in my mind that she won that big. Um, I will say that it's kind of funny that Abrams keeps insisting that it was her ground game when she essentially spent the same amount as Evans um, on TV. Um, she did employ the same strategy. Um, she just didn't spend much of her own money. She had outside groups to help her do it. And, you know, I think... Going forward, I think there was still a gap between the total number cast uh, between Republicans and Democrats at upwards of 100,000. I'm not like, sure on the exact number, but going forward and into the general election, those that's a lot of votes to find or to persuade, and I don't think that Stacey Abrams is the candidate that can do that.
0: What do we think of some of these uh, get out the vote stats that she put together? Uh, She said that she reached out to 1.8 million voters. She mobilized 1,100 volunteers, um, reached out to nearly 150,000 voters on Election Day alone and nearly half a million voters uh, over the final four-day get-out-the-vote period. Uh, both of you guys are closer to campaigns than I am. Are, are these numbers impressive and out of the ordinary, or is this just a pretty good GOTV operation from
1: her? It's definitely out of the ordinary for a primary, you know. So on that on that front, it's impressive because, at least in Georgia, Democrats are pretty slow to getting the field operation up and running. I mean, back in 2016, of you know, the Democrat Democratic coordinated campaign wasn't really up and running um, until uh, in a real way until about September. So the fact that you already have a Democratic campaign racking up these numbers this early is the suggestion that this is a foundation that is going to be built upon. And I think if these numbers stay the same, then it's not very impressive. But if they're able to grow their organization and get a lot more people involved, then I think we'll look back on those numbers as the beginning of the effort that helped them win.
2: Yeah, I think um, her ground game is is certainly impressive. Um, and I would agree with Luke that it is probably um, light years ahead of any other Democrats game and at least my lifetime, <laughs> um, so I will tip my cap in that respect, but, you know, 1.8 million voters contacted, that is a low bar, in my opinion, just because, you know, the Hill campaign made over 850,000 line dials, just in dials, um, to Republican primary voters, and if, you know, you add in, you know, all the folks we sent mail, if you added all the folks that we saw at these events, I mean, you can artificially inflate those numbers um, to get, you know, pretty close to that 1.8 number and, we're, and we weren't the front runner, nor did we have the resources that she spent um, in order to put into her ground game. So, you know, it's um, it depends on what she's putting on paper and, and what she's counting in those numbers, but I, I mean, you certainly have to agree that it's probably the most robust ground game out of any Democrat um, since the, you know, at least early nineties, mid nineties. So I'll I'll give her that. But at the same time, I'd like to know what she's counting as, as contact.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. And, you know, just to, to put why I think it's important um, that we know exactly what those contacts are is that it, and I, I assume a lot of that is field contacts based on how much they talk about field and how many people they have working in field. But, The state house campaigns in Georgia that I've seen that have been upsets that have won when I did not expect them to win were the ones that invested in field early and heavily. Um, Both Jonathan Wallace in 2017 and uh, Sam Park in 2016 were folks that I saw on the ground a lot, knocking doors pretty much constantly. And so I, if that is what those num if that is what makes up the majority of Abrams's numbers, I think that would be something the Republicans should be deeply concerned about because it is an effective strategy in Georgia to increase turnout when it's thought to be impossible to do so in Georgia is by having a field campaign.
0: All right, so let's talk about the second memo that they put out. This was some early polling that the Abrams campaign had done for them. Um, showing early leads for her against both Casey Cagle and Brian Kemp. Her early lead against Casey Cagle is five points. She would beat him 48-43. And she leads Brian Kemp by more. She leads him by nine points, 49-40 in some early internal polling. Um, They also put out that uh, she has higher positives and lower negatives than both Cagle and Kemp. Cody, do you think that these numbers are... Accurate and and how should we interpret them being one poll, you know, in the middle of the summer while Casey Cagle and Brian Kemp are still fighting each other for that uh, nomination,
2: right? Um, so I, if any of you have taken a a class in college or in political science or or in stat, you know, they, there's the the line, and I'm going to amend it. There's lies, damn lies, and now Abrams' internal polling. Um, I, I, I mean. There is some serious hocus pocus that went into those numbers because I could see maybe a couple points lead um, for her in this time period, but five over a guy who's been in statewide elected office for 12 years. She's never sniffed statewide office that has a five point lead over him and then a nine point lead over the eight year incumbent secretary of state. I mean, it just kind of defies logic, in my opinion. Um Again, I can see a couple point lead here and there, um, but I just, it, it's, there's some serious work in the background of that poll to get it to that point, in my opinion.
0: Now, do you think, because the other number that was interesting to me was that, um, and this certainly seems like a an angle that the Abrams campaign, it it benefits them to push this, but Uh, it seems like the issue focus of the Abrams campaign polls a little better. Um, she said that in her, in her number that 54% of voters say they prefer a candidate who's focused on building a diverse economy with good paying jobs and expanding opportunities for families to thrive. And only 36% support a candidate focused on cracking down on illegal immigrants, protecting Georgia values like the right to bear arms and cutting government waste. Um, that difference in focus, it, it is hard to argue that the Republican primary campaign did not devolve into um, contests between all of the Republican candidates about who loved the Second Amendment the most. That issue focus combined with an unpopular uh, Republican president and um, what may be a bad environment for Republicans in the fall, does that even begin to approach? these leads that uh, Abrams claims to have over Cagle and Kemp?
2: I just don't see it. I mean, so there's a couple of things like everyone in every poll, you know, it, it's always the economy that's out front. And, you know, if that is their first consideration, that's good for Republicans because we have probably the strongest jobs record to run on in terms of in Deal and President Trump, um, both the state and national economies are booming, and they're both under Republican control. Um, so I think that would benefit whoever the nominee is. Um, in terms of, you know, I think Ms. Abrams has some pretty radical thoughts in terms of what is acceptable in terms of gun safety regulations or gun control. Um, and I think the, the Republican nominee is going to have a field day on that. And yes, it's a different electorate from the early 2000s, but this is the state that was not happy with Roy Barnes um, when he changed the, the state flag. There are still a lot of people, especially the older folks that get out and vote, that um, I believe would be very turned off in her opinion on life, guns, um, and a lot of the other bread and butter issues for Republicans. You know, There's a reason why Jason Carter um, ran kind of as a NRA Democrat or something of that sort um, in 2014. Um, and I don't think um, I think it's gonna be very interesting in the fall. But the reason why every Republican was hoping for Abrams over Evans is because um, Abrams is an unapologetic excuse me unapologetic liberal on all of these issues, um, and I do not see where you can make a logical, rational argument that that's where the voters in Georgia are.
1: So now I get to play rebuttal on everything. So, for, <laughs> so first about the n- overall numbers. Uh, uh, you know, firm disclaimer: I have not seen the cross tab, so I, I can't speak uh, personally on this one single single poll. But our friends at five thirty eight have given uh, Garing Heart Yang Research Group, is, who is who did the poll, they gave them a B plus. So it's definitely not a pollster that is way out on the reservation uh a lot of times so on that front uh i imagine most of the methods can uh be trusted uh my my biggest concern would be the fact there's only 601 people and uh, so it has a margin of error four percentage points uh but i mean even within that that shows abrams could be having a slight league rather than this bigger league the other thing is I would say I believe these numbers, but I might not think uh, I I would think they might not hold, uh, which is a little more nuanced than what you were saying, Cody, because since the Republicans are still kind of fighting each other. Usually, what happens in Georgia, uh, you know, have, I'm having uh, Nung and Carter flashbacks. That, uh, is when you guys are still kind of fighting it out. Um, it takes a it takes a little while for the voters to get behind the Republican candidate, even if it's people that they they knew, um, because that was something. That's a good point. Yeah, because that's something I, I I saw that happen in 2014 and 20. Uh, yeah, 2014 was when. Uh, the Republicans had primaries and the Democrats did not. Carter and Nunn's numbers were a little bit better. Um, so I imagine that's probably part of the reason that she's ahead because there's still some sore feelings about um, Kegel and uh, Kemp being, you know, making it to the runoff while other candidates didn't. And then the final thing I would say is that um, regardless of what you think of Abrams' message, and regardless if you think that is the message that um the state's voters would want Abrams is the only candidate that's really getting her message out rather than her scandals out. I think, because even uh, because, and it's kind of weird in that because Abrams has a lot of like little scandals, you know, like she had the nonprofit thing and she had a new Georgia project, which, you know, she advocates as a positive, but some people can advocate as negative. Um, But she also has like a very strong message that she is trying to, you know, run on. Whereas like Kemp and Cagle both have messages they're trying to run on. But I significantly hear more about their scandals. And so I think uh, a part part of this is the fact that Abrams, either from people not taking her campaign as seriously because they assume that she's not going to win, is more effective at getting her message out and isn't having to fight um, her you know, quote unquote scandals, because like even when I've seen posts from Casey Cagle's campaign or Brian Kemp's campaign against Abrams, it's not on those little mini scandals. It's on her issue positions. And so on that front, I think that I, I just find that interesting. I don't know what the explanation for that is. And then the final thing I would say is that to win, Abrams has to dramatically reshape the electorate of Georgia And, you know, I am not great at arithmetic, but I do notice that (laughs) there are a lot of Democrats in Georgia that don't vote. And I think that she is uh, running on a strategy that is primarily focused on reshaping the electorate and bringing a lot of people into the process that haven't been part of the process before and trying to pick up the Republicans that might be fed up with you know, a career politician in Casey Cagle or a racist demagogue in Brian Kemp. I think that is her strategy. And, you know, in other states that might not work. But at this point, living in Georgia as long as I have and seeing as many of elections in Georgia as I have, I think that's the only strategy she has that will work because of the fact that, Like it's uh, Georgia is a state where the margin is always pretty close in comparison to some other states, but the electorate is incredibly solid. And, you know, Democrats basically will always get 47 percent if you, you know, Jim Barstale kind of proved that that if you are a terrible candidate and you just put your name on the ballot, you will get about 47 percent no matter what you do. And I thoroughly believe that any candidate in Georgia as a Democrat, if they got into the general election, they would get roughly 47 percent. So, if you're going to get above that, you have to do some extraordinary things and change the electorate.
0: I'd totally forgotten about Jim Barksdale. Most Burkstale. people
1: have. <laughs> um, <laughs> he actually did pop up in the news. Um, uh, he, he did a fundraiser for Richard Winfield. Uh, did not work out well for either of them. Well,
0: and somebody said, somebody, I can't remember who wrote it, it might have been Bluestein, sort of framed it as, you know, is this Jim Barksdale's comeback? Womp, womp. And I was like, the comeback went about as well as the Senate was. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think Luke, your point about her reshaping the electorate is important. Um, because it is hard to look at 2014, 2014, wasn't a great year nationally for the Democrats. Um, but what was maybe potentially a promising candidacy in Jason Carter turned out to fall pretty flat in the, the final numbers. Um, And so I do think that this is actually good reason for her to sort of take the long shot and try to reshape the electorate and try to speak to people about different issues. Um, And it does sort of almost play in nicely with the things that some people might consider scandals about her. I mean, she reframes her personal debt issue as an issue of having to take care of elderly parents and other financial challenges that she's faced in her life, which, you know, you can take a look at good jobs numbers for the state. And, and you know, Republicans often tell Georgia as the number one state to do business in. But for people who have not benefited from that economy, for African Americans who consistently struggle to, uh, you know, not only make the same wages, but amass the same wealth as whites um, and, and other people whom this kind of economy isn't serving well, that tale of Personal financial trouble and dealing with things like healthcare expenses for your your parents and elderly relatives is something that I think you know people are going to be able to relate to. Um, you could also say that she could even spin the issues around New Georgia Project into something positive, particularly if she has to face off against Kemp because every question that gets raised about it, she can, you know, kind of pin it back on Kemp and say, well, this was Brian Kemp's attempts to keep us from registering African-American voters and other voters of color that were going to vote for Democrats. Um, so I think that she, you know, it's, it's a good environment to take a long shot in, given the national environment and um, given the way that sort of the, the blue dog approach of uh, previous Democratic nominees really just hasn't worked.
1: Well, I mean, the other thing I would say, too, is it's like I'm I'm just convinced that this is the only strategy that would work. Like, I'm not just, you know, like at at this time in Georgia, based on what the Democratic electorate is like and what the Republican electorate is like, I do not think that Republican light would work Um, because, I mean, even Doug Jones who is you know pretty conservative in a lot of ways i mean on these bread and butter democratic issues i mean he was pretty liberal like he's pro-choice pretty unambiguous about gun control and other issues so i mean i I, at this point i think if abrams wins it will be because she electrifies the uh, the democratic base and then the type of um Republicans or independent voters who are sick of getting lied to and want someone that's going to tell them what they believe will go for it. And I think I think a problem that Jason Carter had is that a lot of people liked him personally, but didn't have any interest in voting for someone who they weren't really sure what they stood on or what differentiated them from being a uh, good, you know, a Republican.
0: Um, But with that, I think we're going to wrap up this Episode So uh, Cody, thank you so much for coming back and uh, joining the show again.
2: Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me.
0: And Luke, thanks as always.
1: Yeah, thank you. It was good to have you back, Cody. Uh, happy happy you can hang out with us a little bit more. Yes, sir.
0: Alrighty, And we will leave it there, and we will talk to you all next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend. And go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.